So when the Buddha does his uh, extraordinary maneuver of uprooting the endless eons of habitual defilement uh, from his heart, the belief in separateness, the, the, the habit of clinging or grasping um, all the way in the, the final evening of his awakening process. The first thing he does is he chills out for several weeks, um, hanging out around the tree in these different spots. If you go to Bodh Gaya, there's these little shrines around the tree. It says, you know, here he hung out on the third week after his enlightenment, hanging out in the bliss of deliverance. And then, you know, 40 yards away is a spot, you know, behind some bushes where it says, like, here, in the seventh week after his awakening, he hung out um, uh, marveling at the beauty of dependent origination, et cetera, that, that sort of thing. So it kind of teaches you these, these aspects of the Dhamma, of course, as you track them. But he apparently hung out for quite a, some time, a couple of months, um, and, and wasn't really sure if he was going to teach. Uh, the, the discourses record him uh, kind of saying, the thing that I've discovered is too subtle. It's too extraordinary. Nobody will get it. It's not dramatically... Uh, what? Like, it'll be hard to, to teach this, basically. And he actually says in the discourses, he says, you know, if I tried to teach this and people didn't get it, that would be annoying to me, basically. <laughs> like, that would just be no fun. And he considers not teaching. And at the moment when his thought of not teaching reaches its reaches threshold, we might say, um, he has, the modern psychological way to say it would be he has the insight that actually some people will get it. Um, the, the, the cosmic uh, sort of mytho-poetic way to say it, which is the way that the discourses say it, is that Saka, the king of the gods who rules in uh, one of the stacked sort of nested heaven realms, um, Saka is the Buddhist version of the old Vedic king Indra. So Indra, if you're, if you're familiar with Indra or Saka, overhears the Buddha thinking the thought that no one would get his dhamma because it's too subtle. And the text says, as quickly as a strong man would, would bend his extended arm or extend his flexed arm, Saka disappears from the heaven realm and appears in front of the Blessed One and says, Blessed One, you are wrong. Look with your purified inner eye and see that there are beings with little dust in their eyes who would understand and benefit from this dhamma that you have discovered. And only then, and this is interesting, right? Because the Buddha has this power. Once he's awakened, he has what's called the divine eye that is purified and surpasses the human. He can technically know anything if he directs his attention toward it. But he doesn't do so until he's reminded to do so, which is curious. And so Saka says, no, look around, look around. And the Buddha's like, oh. He looks around and he says, hey, it's true. There are some people who would get this. And, and that's all it takes. He says, okay, let's do this teaching thing. And then for the next 45 years, he just walks around, teaches constantly, all the way up until the very moment of his death. Within an hour of his death, he's laying on his deathbed. All the monks and nuns have gathered around. All the wealthy patrons, devas from heaven realms have gathered around. And this one wandering seeker comes up and asks a very beginner's question. And, and his senior disciples try to shoo him away. And they're like, look, it's very important. Like, the Blessed One is dying. 
And the, and the Buddha says, stop, stop, bring him forward, right? This is a seeker with a question. And he lays on him a very simple answer. And the guy thanks him and goes away and takes that simple answer, practices with it, becomes fully awakened. And the text says he was the last direct disciple of the Buddha. So ask your question, you know, <laughs> even at the very last moment. Um, and uh, he teaches up until the last moment. And then he passes away um, at a ripe old age. And so what does he teach? In, when he decides to teach, he first then uses his, his far-seeing eye. He looks around, he says, oh, I think the people who would really get this are my first two teachers. He, when he started his path, he studied with two teachers that were prominent in his day, um, Udaka Ramaputta and Alara Kalama. And they were, we would say, yoga teachers, basically. They taught in the Shramana tradition or the wanderer's tradition, um, in the tradition that, um, that, that really fills the Upanishads and, and Sankhya and early Vedanta, which is they taught very, very deep, formless concentration. Uh, they taught him to, to tune his attention and concentrate it on the perception of nothingness, like, like vast, empty space, essentially, and to understand that everything was empty of true nature, et cetera, but in this very particular concentration-oriented way. So he could do this mental concentration. He learned two different related practices in formless samadhi from these teachers. And in each case, he learned it. He went back to the teacher and said, here's what I can do. The teacher said, that's what I can do too. You are my equal. Let's lead this community together. And the Buddha, Gotama, before he's the Buddha, he reflects and says, this Dhamma and this realm or this base of meditation that I've learned from these teachers only leads to rebirth in the, in the heaven realm associated with this state. So meditation on the base of nothingness, as it's called, leads to rebirth in the base of nothingness. In other words, it doesn't liberate. It's a good skill. It's part of the path. But it doesn't, in and of itself, uproot the defilements, the ancient tendency to cling to sensory experience and to a sense of self. Um, and so he, he sees this with some wisdom, even before he's awakened. And he thanks these teachers and moves on. So he studies with one of them, moves on to another, learns a deeper state. The same process goes through. He says, oh, this doesn't liberate. Then he goes and he says, OK, I'll try the other primary practice. And there were two really big streams of practice in that day. One was the deep concentration meditations, uh, really oriented around inwardness, what we would call later in yoga pratyahara, the drawing in of the senses. He learns to essentially shut down the physical senses and immerse the, his awareness in a profoundly still and radiant inner or beyond inner and outer kind of uh, state. And that was one of the common streams. And the other was ascetic practice, which in a certain way is its opposite. Ascetic practices were intensely physical, intensely painful, and, and were, were, in a sense, the other great root of the yoga tradition, long before there were postures. But in a certain way, these are the antecedents of the modern postures, were physical things you could do 
that in a sense were so intense that they would like burn up the defilements or your, your karma, really. They were things like you know, standing on your head for hours or, or you know, putting the body into backbends you know, over bolsters for like, like days at a time kind of thing. Or uh, one very, very popular one was holding an arm above your head forever, like sacrificing the arm, as it were, to the divine. So it, um, and uh, there was a famous yogi named Puran Puri in the 19th century who, who surveyed all the yoga t techniques around and decided that that was the best one for him. And he did it for the next 40 years. And he walked and traveled all over the continent. He went to Europe. He, he, was, um, he kind of became this celebrity. And he wrote this diary about his experiences. And he did the entire thing with, I think, in his case, it was both arms over his head. How did he write? Yeah. Oh, he, he recited. And oh. he had scribes. Uh, so there were, you know, the ascetic practices were like the practice of never lying down or the practice of, um, you know, sleeping on a mattress of spikes, which, you know, later became almost like pop culture famous, right? Um, so in the text, it says the Buddha tried out all these things, including some of the earliest records that we have of intense pranayama. He says, I thought... Now I will try the, the breathless meditation. And he holds his breath for so long that it feels like his head is exploding and pressure is in his ears and he hears the sound of thunder and bells and it feels like somebody is sawing his head open. And then it didn't work. So then he tries it again and holds it for longer until it feels like somebody is sawing his belly open with a saw. And he does all these things to their utmost extreme. Um, and and the, the fiercest of them in a certain way is that he basically starves himself to, almost to death. He reduces his food intake almost to nothing. At one point, he says, I'll just eat nothing at all. And then a deity shows up and says, if you eat absolutely nothing, we will infuse heavenly food through your pores so that you don't die. And he says, ah, if I say that I'm eating nothing, but the deities are infusing heavenly food into my pores, I will be lying. So I can't do that practice. So I will do the practice of eating very little. <laughs> And, and then the text goes through, like, I will eat one handful of vetch a day, one handful every other day, one handful every seven days, down to one grain of rice a day, down to only eating whatever random stuff the wind blew into his lap while he was sitting in the forest. Mm -hmm. In other words, he starved himself to death. And at the point of near death, he reflected, again, this was his third big tradition that he had tried, and he said, nobody has done these practices fiercer than me. If anyone, uh, uh, I, I know that no one has experienced more pain than me, more, more intensity than me in these practices, and I can see that it is not liberating me. It's not working. And he said, if it was going to work for anybody, it would have worked for me because I have gone farther than anybody. And for a third time, he's, he reflects and he says, oh, this is not the path either. And so he has this interesting and of course, this is, a, this is the way the, the kind of parable of his life as, a, as an archetypal myth unfolded, that in his life he has this sequence of basically the most extreme experience or state of a series of things. He starts off really wealthy. So he has the experience of privilege and of, of having sensual pleasures. And in the later traditions, they really elaborate this into like, you know, massive orgies with, with you know, like, the bodies of courtesans strewn around 
all over the room, disheveled at the end of the party. Um, you know, and if you're privileged enough to have lived a life with bodies strewn around a party at the end, that's what the picture is painted of, that he lived in this kind of extreme kind of luxury in a certain way. And, and then he goes and does extreme meditation and, and is the best at that. And then he does extreme ascetic practice and, and kind of destroys the body and he's the best at that. And he comes out of all that and he says, you know, that none of those things are doing it. They're not doing it. What would do it? And this, in a way, is this beautiful turning point in his path because he's kind of done everything his culture had to supply for him. He's done sensory pleasures. He's done formless meditation. He's done ascetic practice. Um, and... Um, and and he's been high, and he's he's from the upper classes, so he's educated. So he knows the old religious rituals, and he knows you know Warcraft and poetry, and he's literate and all these things. And he says, "Oh, I've done all this stuff, and none of it is showing a path to the liberation that I'm seeking." And what he was really seeking was an end to the anxiety he felt about old age, sickness, and death. That was the compelling reason, right? He had, he had noticed over the attempt by his father to shield him from any sort of contact with misery in the world, um, he, had, he had managed to escape the, the gilded cage and encounters old age, sickness, and death, and he starts to, to fear it. And he says, you know, what do I do about this? I have to find a solution for this intense anxiety that I feel when I know that I'm going to grow old, that I know that I'm going to sicken, that I know that I'm going to die. And we don't know what happens after. He's distressed. So he tries everything his culture has to offer. And then he's kind of at the end of his rope, besides that he's nearly dead. And he says, and it's been six years of practice, and he says, what could be the way? And I think it's beautiful that you know, he tries these things fully and he masters them. Like in each case, everyone's like, whoa, that dude has gone as far as you can go in this. So he doesn't make the decision to leave his teachers lightly. And he doesn't make it as a, with a kind of shopping mentality. He's not like looking for this path or looking for that path. He actually tries them fully. And at least in the structure of the myth or the, the parable of it, he completes each one. He says, really, I did that. He, he gets it. And... Then he says, what could it be? And, and in asking what it could be, he has an insight that is a memory of his childhood. He remembers that when he was quite young, on a spring afternoon, his, his father was doing a plowing ceremony. It seems like it was kind of a, like a, a sort of planting ritual. And he, being a kid, he wasn't needed, so he was sitting off by himself underneath a rose apple tree. And, uh, and it's, it's said that the day was so beautiful and so tranquil and peaceful that he effortlessly slipped into a state of meditation that was not formless, that was not nothingness or emptiness, but that was an embodied, concentrated, pleasurable state called the first jhana, which is characterized by, by seclusion, but not by uh, disembodiment. It's really characterized by the pleasure of 
of the aiming and sustaining of attention with an arising rapture or, or, or a kind of bodily joy. So he remembers, as a child, dropping into this very pleasurable embodied state. And, and he says to himself, could this be the way? In other words, could the way to freedom be not a disembodied or formless meditation, nor a, a crushing of the body through ascetic practice, nor through an indulgence of the body through wealth and privilege and sensory uh, uh, indulgence, but something else. And what that something else is, is it's embodied. So it's a, it's a concentration state. So there still is mental focus to a substantial degree. It's, it's a quite a deep state, jhana. But it's not formless. It's really immersed in bodily sensation immersed in bodily pleasure, but it's not a pleasure that derives from sensual contact. It's not dependent on the presence of a food you like or a person you like or a comfortable physical setting. Like, you could be physically uncomfortable and still enter jhana. It's harder, but you can do it. But, you know, he does it on a very nice day. He's like, oh, I was a kid. It was a beautiful day. He was physically comfortable, but not in an indulgent way. He wasn't high. He wasn't at the middle of a party surrounded by like floods of sensual attention and music and food and sex and all the stuff. He was just a kid sitting under a tree doing nothing. He remembers that state and he has the intuition, this is the way. And then I think because he's been training in the ascetic practices, he asks himself, is this pleasure of this embodied meditative state, is this a pleasure that I should fear? Because um, I think in, 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 in the whole early yogic system, there's the sense that to find out what's true, you have to draw your senses in from being enraptured by or clinging to external sensory input. And then part of how that manifests, especially in the celibate monastic orders, is that it slips, I think, easily into a fear of sensuality, like a fear of pleasure. Pleasure is to be avoided because it's so seductive, it's so addictive. And so it becomes a kind of, you know, uh, like, um, is anyone in here in, in here in recovery? You don't have to raise your hands, but there you go. Um, the addiction process often is presented as a kind of like all or nothing system, which it's not. but. But treating it can sometimes it can sometimes be helpful to treat it as an all-or-nothing system. So like when you're sober, you're fully sober. It's just like not a single drop. And I think that it can build in a kind of fear of the addictive substance, whatever it is, that that in a certain way can be clinically or therapeutically useful. Right? It, like it helps in a certain way. And the Buddha will use this in various ways later. He'll say, like, be afraid of ethical misconduct be ashamed of past ethical misconduct. Like, really get it that you don't want to do this. You don't want to cause karmic harm. So he'll use that fear. In this case, he says, was the fear of pleasure, um, is the fear of pleasure appropriate in this case? And, and when he answers it, he says, no, this is not a pleasure that I should fear. In a certain way, we can hear that he doesn't affirm that all pleasures are now not dangerous. In a certain way, he's still saying, 
watch out for extreme sensory pleasure. Right? He's not yet wise enough, or tantric enough, we might say, to go back to the orgy and be like, I got this full non-attachment, people. You know, He doesn't say that for at least another 1,500 years. Um, and, and even then, it comes with some qualifications, namely jhana. In other words, you're not supposed to do radical tantric practice until you can rest your mind in profound inward pleasure and stillness. Yeah? And part of why jhana works, jhana is these states of deep embodied absorption. Part of why it works to liberate is that it's so pleasurable that it uh, kind of cancels out or puts in its place the sensory pleasures that you're so into. It says like, oh, you're really into, you know, food and music and sex and, and being sort of warm and cozy and like cashmere sweaters. It's very nice, right? He says like, that's great, but this is so much better that in a sense, if you can learn how to enter these, these like pleasurable states at will, why would you crave lesser things? You could be like, yeah, you know, I could go and have that like, triple complex sweet salty food substance that I crave, whatever it is. <laughs> or I could just enter jhana. And like, really, it's sort of like saying, you know, would you rather like, I don't know, compare anything to like the best thing you know of and then the better thing. And, and it, it turns out to be a bit like that. He says, oh. This is a pleasure not to be feared. That means I can do it and rest in it, and it's the path to liberation. So then he does it. He says, okay, let's do that. And in order to do that, I know this was supposed to be the beginning of the Eightfold Path. I can't even get there. I have to tell you the story. Um, we'll get there. Uh, before he can do it, this is really the beginning of, of right view, actually, because before he can do that practice that he has the intuition that is the right way, he has to nourish his body, right? Remember, he's, he's having this, this insight in a near-death state. He's emaciated, his ribs are jutting out. His, it says when he rubs his arms to try, his limbs to try to, to try to relieve the pain, the hair just falls off, the skin flakes off. He's, he's in a bad way, this guy. In the early 30s, he looks ancient. So he's coming to this conclusion, and it happens at that moment that a woman of the town, whose name was Sujata, had come out to this bit of forest a year before, and she had been praying for a child. She had prayed to this big tree spirit for a child and made offerings there, um, and gone back to her home and to her family. And she had, in fact, conceived, born a healthy child. And now, a year later, in, so, in such gratitude for the fulfillment of her wish to have this this child, um, whose name was Yasa, who would later become enlightened under the Buddha, um, but he becomes a party kid first, and he's lit, gets enlightened later. Um, uh, she, she has, she, she's rich, so she has milked a thousand cows and fed their milk to a hundred cows and then milked them and fed their milk to ten cows and then milked them and fed their milk to one cow, so that Sort of mythically, she's made this like ultra concentrated cream, basically, like super magical cream, the most nutritious substance you could possibly think of in the kind of South Asian worldview. 
and she's brought a bowl of this out to give to this tree spirit in gratitude. And she gets to it, uh, this is all in the commentaries, and it says she finds this kind of withered, ancient-looking kind of wraith of a being. Uh, you know, she finds kind of a ring wraith under the tree <laughs> and, um, and says, like, oh, this must be the tree spirit and offers the, the food. And then she realizes, oh, it's not. It's this person. And, you know, <laughs> he looks like he could use this. So she gives it. And um, she, she becomes the first lay disciple um, and the, the preeminent of the, of the women lay disciples. And so the Buddha nourishes uh, himself with this cream. And then uh, one of the stories says that he says, if my intuition is correct and this is the path, may the bowl float upstream. And he throws the bowl into the river, and it floats against the current upstream. That's where we get the metaphor that the Dhamma or the Dharma of the Buddha goes against the stream of worldly life. Um, so with gratitude to Sujata and uh, this, uh, we could say mythically, like this contact with the feminine and the nurturing and, you know, like 1,111 cows, something like that, if I'm remembering the numbers correctly, a whole bunch of mama cows who are divine, plus Sujata doing the work of concentrating a new mother. Uh, that's a big blessing from the divine feminine, we might say, to this poor young man who is struggling so hard to figure it out. He nourishes himself, and then he sits down under the tree to awaken, um, and does so. He sees all his past lives. He sees how karma works. He uproots the defilements. He sees the morning star, and it's over. That's the short version. I've told that story lots of times. So we'll tell that again someday. But he does it. He figures out the path. So why is this the beginning of right view? When he eventually does teach and he, he leaves his place of enlightenment, he goes, he asks himself, oh, I should teach my old teachers, Alara Kalama and Udakarama Putta. He sees that both of them have recently died and they're in heaven realms now, so he can't teach them yet. Um, so then he says, okay, who's, who, who then do I think would received this teaching, and he thinks of his five ascetic friends who'd been practicing with him when he was starving himself. And when they saw him take the food, they said, oh, Gotama, he's gone off the path. He's not a good example for us anymore. And they leave him, and they, they walk like 100 miles away. So he says, oh, they would get it. Um, and so he sets out to walk, and he walks to them, and he gives them this first teaching where he teaches them the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. Well, so we'll talk about the Eightfold Path next week a bit and kind of lay into this first layer of teaching. But the Eightfold Path starts with right view. View is ditti or drishti. Um, and it's, it's the beginning of the path because, in a sense, it's the formalization of his insight, where he's really saying throughout his search, what's the right way? What's the right way? How should one practice to be liberated? And he has to figure it out. And, and he has to find this path that is not sensory indulgence, but not asceticism, not disembodied practice, but embodied practice. And in a certain way, that's, two, that's these two kind of primary spectra, we could say, that he investigates, right? What to do with the senses, like give them all the things it desires or, or take away all the things it desires. Like, oh, that's not it. There's a middle way between there. 
And then he says, okay, formless or form? And he decides on form. He says, oh, embodied pleasure, that's the way. And so having done that, what we get as a model to start the whole path out with is that he engages a kind of discernment. And he really asks himself at each of these kind of momentous turning points in his path, he says, is this right? Is this really going to liberate? And he investigates it. He sees it clearly. And he realizes like, oh, this, this is part of the path or this is an aspect, but this is not it. Or he realizes with the ascetic practice, this is simply not it. Right view, um, in brief, and then we'll continue with this as we, as we go on, is the lens, as it were, that you agree to put on to look at the world a certain way as you start your path. It doesn't mean that you have wisdom yet. It really means that you are willing to look in a certain direction. And it's sort of like saying, you know, if we were to apply this, let's say, to our contemporary situation around, let's say, one of the great oppressions nowadays. You know, we might say, I was reading this morning an article about... Um, about some of the Native American tribes' relationship to the presidential election. And it was talking kind of about the history of broken treaties and how presidential candidates always sort of show up at some point to the Native tribes. And they're like, they're like we love you, but then nothing ever happens to change, um, you know, health care, like really on-the-ground issues. So, like, right view, in a sense, would be not coming to the perfect or fully healed state in relation to a great oppression like the genocide of indigenous people on this continent, it would be the beginning of that, which would be simply the willingness to look at it, right? The willingness to come out of denial, to turn toward the suffering. The beginning of wise view is a waking up to pain, basically, right? And if we think back to the beginning of the Buddha's path, that's what sends him off. In a certain way, the very first thing he does is he goes, old age, sickness, and death. Why is everybody else pretending to not be troubled by this? Why are you all just kind of like, yeah, 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 we know. That kind of happens to everybody. Have some dessert. <laughs> and he's like, no. I don't like this situation. This is not satisfying. Right? Loss is not satisfying. Grief is not satisfying. You know, knowing that I'm going to die is not satisfying. Why is everyone like, la, 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 I can't hear you about that? <laughs> so wise view, I think this, the beginning of wise view is, is simply the turning toward life, which means death. It means the whole thing, right? What, what's that like? What would that be like? I mean, a way of saying... I, it, it, it says a bit. I don't think it says I am not afraid of looking at things. That's the enlightened view. It kind of says I am willing to be unafraid of looking at things. And I think the beginning of it is fear, right? He looks around and he's like, whoa, old age. You know, and the, and the, the discourses are quite graphic. They're like, you know, he saw an old person like crooked like a roof bracket. That means like this, you know, like crooked like a roof bracket, bent over, 
teeth fallen out, hair fallen out, clutching a cane or a stick, barely able to walk, looking down, like really paints a picture of like decrepitude of extreme old age. And the young Buddha, he's like, whoa, that's where we're going? I don't like this. So, you know, he's afraid. And I think that wise view, in a certain way, we could say starts with being willing to be startled or, or opened or blown open or, or coaxed into, if we want to be a little gentler, coaxed into by our beloved community of wiser beings that we surround ourselves with because we want to wake up into seeing clearly the various threats that are real in this life. So we wake up to the reality of, of this kind of suffering, that kind of suffering, internal suffering, and bit by bit, right view becomes the whole path. Right, right view, which we'll talk about next week, turns into ethics. And as soon as you're like, oh, suffering, like the very next thing to come up is like, why would I want to cause more of it? That would be terrible. You know? Like it would really, it's really, it just hurts to cause harm. And so the beginning of right view is, is, is an understanding of karma in a simple way. Right? Cause harm, it hurts. Done. Doesn't, you don't have to get metaphysical. You don't have to see your past lives. That will come. It's really, it starts simple. So then wise view We'll look over the next few weeks at a few sections in what's called the Discourse on Wise View. Um, Middle-length discourse is nine. Um, I'll put a link to it on the website so you can read it. It's a beautiful discourse. It's a bit dense. Um, uh, the Buddha's disciple, Sariputta, who's the foremost in wisdom, uh, a bunch of monks ask, Sariputta, tell us about Wise View. And um, he just lays out the whole thing in this kind of magisterial you know, uh, discourse. It's quite impressive. And, uh, and considered fairly difficult. But it's really just a list of lists. And um, so the first one is that wise view is ethics. So we'll look at the 10 bases of the wholesome and unwholesome next week. But let's think, you know, this week or as we begin this series, um, in whatever way it feels helpful to you, think about wise view in its simplest way as essentially like accepting the invitation of the Four Noble Truths, and especially the first one. Just like start at the very beginning. The first Noble Truth is the truth of suffering. The word is dukkha, or pain, distress, dissatisfaction. It says just, just start there, right? Just don't, uh, just don't close your eyes to what's already right in front of you. And that's the willingness to do that in the heart is a turning against the stream of the world and toward the path of liberation. And it takes a certain uh, blossoming of a kind of energy in the heart to do that. Because really, it's much easier to just uh, keep the entertainment flowing. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. It's re- it, it would actually be easier in a certain way to stay in the palace with the courtesans and the, the food and all that stuff if you have access to them. right? Um, and if you don't, uh, it's easier in a certain way because the pain is more present. Uh, and this is really a footnote for later, but a proposal that the Buddha's path centers on the seeing of pain and the renunciation of comfort because he was a rich kid. And that that is actually an instruction for rich people. 
and that poor people have a slightly different path or in some ways a substantially different path because they don't have to leave a palace of comforts and delusion in order to see pain and suffering. It's obvious. And so in a certain way, they, the wise view that sees suffering for what it is and says, what can I do about this, um, has a different purchase in the heart. So I don't know actually if it's easier because other things have to be overcome, like material privation. But, um, but I think the first steps are different depending on the amount of privilege you come from. So we can think about it in this way and wonder, wherever I come from, whatever my varying kind of place on the spectrum of privilege to poverty, uh, what, what have I got coursing through my life that is seductive enough that it asks me not to look at something that is true, that I kind of know is true, but I don't want to look. So, so we'll start there on Wise View, and then we'll go on from that point. Uh, yeah, thoughts and questions here, please. Uh, Hannah. So the way that you just spoke about coming to... Um, right understanding or right um, is very dualistic, very discriminatory. Yeah. Where you get and I had always understood that when the Buddha had what's the first precept? Right I don't know. Right view. Right, right, right view. view is the first had, limb of the I had always thought that it was um, more non dualistic like Shaivite or Tantric where they just like there was no place to um, there was no view that could incorporate the suffering and the death and so it was just kind of like a surrender to like I don't know and and, and through these mm-hmm. different things he opened himself up to an awareness that was beyond like yes. discriminatory or beyond Roger, beyond <coughs> dualistic and the way you talk about it now, it's like almost like he intellectually got there, but I don't see how it's possible to get intellectually to non-dualism. You can't. Or, or how discriminatory to get to. You can't. So I didn't understand. Um, uh, there's, there's a good 1,500 years between this view that I'm speaking to now and the one that you're speaking to. And so what we can think about in that historical spread right. is something like the evolution of a core idea as it flows forward through generations of mystics. So the way I expressed it is pretty solidly the way it's expressed in the Pali Canon. But that, in a certain way, is the narrative of the Buddha getting to his realization. Then he teaches for a bunch of decades. A whole bunch of people get really enlightened. And after he dies... They, start, they continue to practice and continue to awaken and start to look into the implications of what just happened. Because even in the early system, when you get fully liberated, it entails the end of views. Mm-hmm. View is over. There's no more views mm-hmm. at the moment of enlightenment. Mm-hmm. And so actually the Eightfold Path is sometimes presented as, as a tenfold path where it, you go all the way through the eight, and then it loops back around to right view and understanding. Um, 
right view and intention, um, the wisdom limbs. So in a sense, right view is a pre-awakening practice and a post-awakening wisdom. And the post-awakening wisdom is what you are presenting, is, is wildly non-dual. The Buddha doesn't say whether he exists or not. Everything is embedded in an infinitely perfect or full or empty oneness. But to speak about it that way, like to really use the language of non-duality or oneness, is a historical evolution that will come later. I think that the two understandings are completely compatible. Um, I tend to teach from the, and you'll get the other side if you do the Heart Sutra course or something else commercial, but um, in the Mahayana and in the Zen teachings that, that I started with, it's very much that understanding. Right? No limited discrimination between wholesome and unwholesome will get you to a state that is beyond wholesome and unwholesome. Oh, oh. But for me, in the, in the current scene, I have been around non-dual teachings enough in the communities that love them to see... Um, to have decided that for myself as a teacher anyway, I feel both safer and more helpful in the world teaching the foundation in a dualistic discriminatory structure. And the main reason for this is that it emphasizes ethics differently. Mm -hmm. That in an absolutely non-dual state, there's no right and wrong. But... um, Western dharma has been so profoundly wounded by ethical misconduct that I feel like it is irresponsible to emphasize the non-dual viewpoint unless I know that I'm talking to very serious senior students as you are after many, many decades of practice, not like outing your age or anything, but you've been around the block (laughs) practicing for a long time and you can rest into a view like that, and many folks here can, and we do weave into it, mm-hmm. but, um, but the danger in the non-dual, as you know well, is spiritual bypass. Right. Yeah. And so uh, I prefer to avoid that danger by emphasizing a dualistic yeah. kind of discriminatory path. Um, yeah. It, but it's, it's worth saying, because, mm-hmm. because that's true, what you're saying, you know. And even before the Buddha dies, that's going to start to be emphasized. You know, the idea is that some years into his ministry, he, um, he spends an entire rains retreat where every night he goes up to a heaven realm where his mother is living because she died right after he was born. And he teaches her these super subtle teachings. And then he comes back and in the morning he tells Sariputta, um, his most advanced monk in wisdom, what he taught his mom in the heaven realms. He gives Sariputta the sort of cliff notes in the morning and then Sariputta compi- compiles them into the Abhidhamma, the subtle teachings. Um, but that, you know, in the Mahayana tradition, in the later Tantra traditions, the idea is that the Buddha did teach that kind of radical non-dualism, but he taught it only in the heaven realms or in kind of dream realms and not in the kind of concrete here. One more before we go. Is it too late? So, it's 8.30, it's time, but say it and then we'll... I'll say the tiniest thing about it, and then we can continue later. Okay. Yeah, my question is kind of 
kind of yes or no because I want to be humble and actually ask some like ask Yeah. Him. I'm curious what you'll if you'll say yes. Um, <laughs> um, no. It's kind of it's kind of related. Thank you. It's kind of quick. Uh, it's kind of related to this question in a supplementary way. So, one thing I often look for is a element of horror um, mm. in trying to notice that I'm actually meditating. And when, mm. so mm. I'm not experienced with the eightfold path or the teachings, um, and I am used to more of like an exposure model um, yeah. for developing myself. Yeah. And the way that I experienced that is that I, I wasn't done like hurting my family and my friends until I had enough of it like, yeah. to eat. Yeah. And I guess I wondered if um, that's something that, like I often hear the veneer of what is taught in classes or when I go out as being almost like a musical in the sense that some textures are left out, like horror, mm. horror textures are left yeah. out. Yeah. Like hating family is left out. I've and, certainly hated mine, I mean, but indeed. Yeah, it's fun. <laughs> it's, it's neat. Um, and I, I mm. wonder if there's an experience of going into this cultural right. experience where that is allowed or not left out. Yeah. That is not a yes/no answer, but um, but I'm but, but I'm happy for you to, to ask it. Um, my short answer would be that the aspect of that that I would emphasize as a teacher would be to recognize in the mind state that is doing that the quality of suffering that's there. Um, so, like, what is it? What is it about this mind state that is that is hooked into? a state that is painful, whatever that is. Like, is this mind state grasping something or fearing something or hating something? And just understand that this is suffering, that this is unrest in some way. Yeah. The, the piece about like feeling like one perhaps needs to hit threshold with it or complete it in a way. And maybe the question is something like, is there a doctrinal justification for that idea? The one place that I could go with that would be deep into the tantric world, where there is, there did arise at a certain point, probably around sort of the, maybe like, sixth to eighth century. Um, there starts to arise ideas that one could go fully into the horrifying, and you know, practicing in cemeteries and invoking these kind of fierce. Uh, you know, murderous deities, um, you know, where the culmination of practice would be this kind of a vision of this deity appearing and devouring you and kind of direction. Um, and that does appear in both the Buddhist and Hindu tantric streams at a certain point. It's, it's definitely niche. Um, it's, uh, but, but from the perspective that I would look at, I would really try to I would emphasize feeling into it as a state and, and, and just being curious, like, okay, what is my mind or heart trying to do here? Can I say, like, I'm not trying to be edgy. The, yeah, yeah. When I try to do that noticing, the part that's, that is confounding for me is that there is some suffering and judgment, yeah. but it's intertwined with something that I guess I would describe as, like, a conviction that I still need to journey. 
Yeah. So what I so look at that conviction and just be curious about it, I would say. And ask you could ask something like is this con sort of like the Buddha did, you know, about his different paths. You might say is this conviction accurate? Is this true? Is this actually a wholesome way to practice? Is this going to lead me to the end of suffering? And I don't know the state, so you might get a variety of answers and you might practice with it for a while, but you would want to sense, can I trust this inner voice? And you might or might not decide in the end that it's ethical or wise to go with it, but you can ask and you don't have to believe it. Um, the short answer to that is trauma. And now we should stop, but, um, but come back and we can totally talk about it more. Um, and one thing I want to say about discussion, since our discussions are more curtailed now, is that I am starting to, um, I'm starting to ramp into, and we're starting to kind of lean into getting this Facebook group going called In It to End It. Join it if you want. Um, and part of what I'm going to do there is put out some sutta study videos and, and study modules. I'm going to think of it as an online sitting group or, or sangha for people who are distant. And it's a place where we can have conversations in a more extended way, in a thread kind of way. So this would be the kind of thing that we could continue from this talk, which I'll post there. And we could just carry on in that sense. So that's also a place for that, of course. Thank you for being here. Um, and thank you for always anybody for asking actually interesting questions, because that's really fun. Um, thank you, Hannah, as well. So blessings to everybody. Um, blessings to everyone out in the world, and um, may you all be safe and at ease. See you soon.